This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. If I'm living for other people and I'm making choices based off of my need for validation from somebody else, I'm not going to be happy doing that. I'm not going to feel free doing that. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Leah McSweeney. You may recognize Leah from The Real Housewives of New York, or maybe you've read her book, Chaos Theory, or perhaps you follow her online. Leah has such an inspiring story that we dive deep into today. Today on the show, we discuss Leah's riveting story of finding sobriety, why being expelled from school shaped who she is today, how Leah's 20s transformed her, why her last relapse was one of the most painful moments of her life, how reality TV impacts mental health, why addiction is so challenging to understand, how Leah has used adversity to her advantage, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Leah McSweeney to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Leah McSweeney, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You got it. I would love for the sake of time just to, to jump right in. I've heard you say that being expelled from school shaped who you are today. Why is that? Yeah, it definitely did, you know, and not in a good way. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, for better or worse, I think that it shaped me fundamentally because I felt so grown out and I felt so like discarded and misunderstood. And it gave me a chip on my shoulder. And I think I've been trying to prove myself ever since. But I also think that like I've been anti-establishment, anti-authority ever since as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think I also understand that during that time in your life, you felt that it was kind of unfair and that you, you found a way to stand up for yourself in that moment. And I feel like that's like carried on with you today. How did that shape your ability to stand up for what you believe in, stand up for yourself and just not tolerate things. You know, I think that it it was unfair. There was not really a good reason to throw me out of the school. And I was thrown out for reasons that were not like just or okay. You know, I also feel like, yeah, I am pretty good at standing up for myself and things. It's not that I don't stand up for things anymore. I still do. I'm just like, I don't let things affect me as much. I kind of like have built a bubble around myself just like for mental health purposes. Oh my God, it's actually funny because this person was like, we were talking about an article that I wrote a while ago called Toxic Femininity that I got a lot of like pushback for, but I also got a lot of like props for, you know, and it's something I stand by still and I'm proud of myself for writing it. But they were like, you like pain. Like, why would you write that? You like pain. Like you knew that was going to cause pain. And I was like, you know, maybe a little, but I did it because I just 
couldn't stay quiet about it. It was driving me crazy because I saw something happening and I'm like, I need to say what I'm seeing and how this is like not, you know, okay. Yeah, I think that like, look, it's like nature and nurture, right? There's like so many different things. And like, I think that I always kind of like stood up to the bully, like at the playground and I was never a bully myself. You know, I mean, maybe I would bully the bullies a little, you know, but um, I'm not sure when that started. It possibly started, you know, at eighth grade when I got thrown out. I think it started before that, though. Talk to me about how that event and at that time in your life, like led to, you know, this the start of this destructive path of addiction that you went down. You know, it's so like for me, like my addiction and like alcoholism is so wrapped up in like self-destruction and like self-hatred, I think. Like, I, I don't know. I think, you know, I think, listen, I think getting thrown out of school made me feel unworthy, made me feel less than, and I internalized all of that. You know, maybe now as an adult, uh, that something like that happened, or if I get dumped, or if I get someone says something horrible to me or whatever, I can be like, that's not true. You know, I'm lovable. I'm worthy, all those things, even though I don't always feel that way. But at, as a 13-year-old, I totally internalized that. And and I will say that also, I don't know, I, I come from a long line of alcoholics. <laughs> and I think that also I was always interested in feeling other than how I felt. I always wanted to escape myself. I still do. Before we get into how that you know presents itself now, so you end up you know, starting down this slippery slope of addiction. I know you started drinking when you were young. And then I think you went to rehab when you were, what, barely, when you were a teenager, right? You came, you I went to- I turned 15, like a week before. Yeah. And that was for alcohol? I was already doing like crystal meth and an angel dust and acid. You know, I was a raver. So I did all the rave drugs, you know? I didn't care. I wasn't like, it wasn't about one specific drug or, you know what I mean? It was, I was doing anything you would give me, I would do it. So then you got out of rehab the the first time. And then I think you, you tried to, I mean, you clean yourself up for a little bit and then you ended up like going back down the path, getting kicked out of your, your parents' house, you know, walk the audience through what that all looked like. So I also got thrown out of school, but when I got back from rehab, I went back to school. It was like October by that time. Cause it was like September that I was at. So it was like sophomore year. And within the first, you know, I met an older guy who was, had lots of access to drugs, of course. And I actually dated him for a while and stayed sober, which was like weird, but I got thrown out of school right away because one of the girls at school was like, your boyfriend's a child molester. You know, he was a lot older than me. He was 22. It's totally illegal for us to be dating. And I like threw her into the lockers, you know, don't talk about my man like that. So I threw her into the lockers and they're like, you're out of control. Like you need to be homeschooled. So I was homeschooled at like a tutoring thing. Let's, let's put it this way. My teenage years were what parents' nightmares are made of. Right. Missing for weeks, drug benders, just insane, hanging out with criminals, doing criminal things, like in and out of outpatient, not outpatient, but like I was doing IOP sometimes. My parents signed me over to the state because they were like, we can't control her. So I had a probation officer that was like, drug testing me. And I have like, you know, the threat of juvie, if I had like a dirty urine, which I could just use someone else's pee, which I was doing all the time. It was really, it was horrible. I think I have probably some, I know my mother has PTSD from it for sure. 
And I'm sure I do too, somehow. <laughs> so when did you start to clean your life up a little bit? Because I know that even like during your 20s, when you were building this, your successful business and everything, you were still like using and doing things and got pregnant. But I would imagine that you had to kind of chill out just a little bit in between the time you were a kid until like you got into your 20s. So like what ended up happening? What I did was I was like, okay, meth, angel dust. These are probably drugs I shouldn't be doing anymore. Let me switch over to like apple martinis and like cocaine and like Xanax or whatever. And like sometimes ecstasy or whatever, you know, because that's much more manageable than like doing hardcore drugs, right? For at least for a little while. But that obviously that doesn't last for so long. And But I was managing, you know, I don't know, I guess you could call me high functioning, a high functioning alcoholic or something or high functioning drug addict, which I don't really necessarily like people have called me that before. I don't see myself as that because like, maybe I can present well to the world or whatever. But also like I chose a job, which was my own company that I could put all of my psychotic, addictive personality traits into and it worked for me. But I could have never held my own job. And also the brand might've been much more successful had I not been getting up too. you know, like it wasn't really as financially successful as everyone thinks it was creatively successful. I did amazing things with my company. I mean, I, I, it was incredible. And yes, I supported myself and I made a living, but like, I never sold my brand for like $20 million or 10 million or even 3 million, you know? So, but was there anything that like stopped you in your tracks between like you just described what life was like for you as a teenager you like were running away from home missing for weeks at a time your parents signed you over to the state you're expelled from multiple schools you're in and out of rehab i mean that's pretty young for you to have this aha awakening moment on your own to be like well i probably should just stop these things and just move on to this what did you like was there a moment where you were like something happened did you go to rehab therapy like what happened well, I went to rehab. Yes, I went to rehab. I went to Karen Foundation in 2000 to 2001. And then I lived in a therapeutic community for a little bit. And then I lived in a halfway house. So I was in treatment for like nine months. Mm. And I got out right before 9-11. I had stayed sober. And then I relapsed the, the night before 9-11 or two days before 9-11. And I was like, remember being like, I, I was at my grandmother's apartment because I ended up moving in with her. And I remember like being like naked and like crying hysterically and like praying and being like, I can't believe I relapsed, help me that, you know? And then like 9-11 happened two days later. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna keep drinking. The world's over, you know, I, I, you know, whatever. But I did stop doing all the hardcore drugs, you know? And then I quickly met Rob, who, you know, I have my child with. And he was such a great influence on me. I mean, because I, and I started like, you know, I started, I got a job at the guest store and I got into fashion and I started interning at like a magazine and, you know, I, I became like interested in having like interest and being like, okay, like my life is like worth living. And I have these like dreams and goals that I want to go after. How do I go after them while still partying? <laughs> How did you decide to start this business? Cause I felt like a lot of people when they're like in the thick of any kind of addiction and they don't have a lot of business experience per se, like the thought of them doing something like that seems so wild and crazy that they wouldn't even attempt to do it, or they're just so caught up in their addiction that prevents them from, you know, doing anything else. No, I'm so crazy that I was like, I'm going to do this, you know, why not? And also at the time, yeah, I mean, my drinking was like out of control, but like, I was still, it wasn't like I was 23, you know? So it wasn't like, I, I didn't have that many years of like drinking under my belt yet, where it was like, 
it still seemed like, you know, getting blackout drunk and like, you know, losing my bag at the club. I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, it wasn't like a problem problem yet. Like, of course it was. I wouldn't say I was like in the throes of my addiction at that point. I had been like, wow, I've overcome addiction. Look at this. I was a juvenile delinquent. I was a meth addict, you know, all these things. People thought I was going to be dead in the street. I have a business. It's going well. As far as I was concerned, I was like a success story. And I was like, I don't have this anymore. I don't have this addiction, alcoholism thing that people thought I had. I'm fine. I just like to drink a lot. I'm Irish. For clarification, the business that you started, you started like a women's streetwear fashion company, right? Yeah. But you were never married to anybody in the mob, right? Sadly. Where did you come up with that name? (laughs) Because I think like, oh God, it's so long ago. I feel like there was like multiple reasons, but I would joke around and say I was married to the mob because like I wasn't really working at all and was just like hanging out and, you know, getting my nails done and having Rob on my little lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) And and Rob, who is your daughter's father, right? He was like big in the fashion industry at that time, right? Correct? Totally. Yes. Yeah. He's a really talented guy. So I heard you say in your book, something like you entered your 20s in chaos and you left with this thriving business and, you know, having a daughter. Talk a bit about how your 20s like really transformed you. Oh my God. 20s were interesting. If I have to be honest, those early days of married to the mob, drinking, not having consequences yet for the drinking, like not having really bad hangovers or anything, like those were some of the best days of my life. My 20s shaped me because I mean, so many, so many things happened in my 20s. I mean, like starting the business and having a child and getting sober. You know, I really became kind of like an adult overnight in some ways, like without having that much. I mean, tools to deal with it, which was also really hard. (laughs) And I will say my first like go at sobriety, which, you know, I haven't really, I haven't talked about this, but I have like 20 months back, you know, and I, I like went out not this past January, but the January before that, not on alcohol, but on a different substance. I did the best I could when I got sober in 2009, when I was 27, but it was not, I was kind of doing the Leah, doing it the Leah way. It was painful. I was dry. I would say I was dry. And so what's changed this time around? Because I mean, I think I've heard you say that, you know, you started working with an energy healer and that you're really passionate about sobriety. Like what's different? Well, I will say that I'm much more like involved in like the 12 step world. I, for instance, you know, like last week I had strep throat. I said to my doctor, can I have a non-narcotic cough syrup? I never would have done that before. I would have been like, can I have cough syrup codeine? You know what I mean? Like load me up and I'm going to drink the whole bottle tonight. And I'd be like, I'm sober. And I realized that that's not good for me. <laughs> I was also really like, I would say using medications that were prescribed to me, but in a really unhealthy way. And I had to re-examine my relationship with that. Yeah. I'm just in a different place. Um, it's just much different. Like even someone the other day was like, you're so calm. I mean, sometimes I'm calm, you know, I feel pretty calm right now. So you've had a lot go on in your life between the stuff we just talked about with your childhood addiction. I know you're open about being diagnosed with bipolar and like, just I'm not sure about that. diagnosis. Oh, okay. No, no, it's fine because I, I own it. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm just so like, over these terms of, um, I have like a theory about bipolar too. Can I say it? Sure. 
So bipolar two disorder, the hypomanic characteristics are very similar to addictive behavior when you do not have a program or when you're not in recovery, but maybe you're dry. It's like hypersexual overspending, you know, like it's, it's like, okay, you're basically choosing one thing. You're stopping drugs or alcohol and then doing another. Now, of course, it's followed by a very bad depression, right? That's what makes it like the manic depression kind of thing. And also you only have to have one hypomanic episode and one depression to qualify you as bipolar too. So have I had hypomania? I did. I did have it once. And have I had debilitating depression? Like, absolutely. So anyway, maybe I'm bipolar too. I don't know. I definitely have mood swings, but I also have to deal with hormones. So anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just always have to say that because also I don't want to get too married to like a diagnosis. And even though it's it's very liberating when you're like, oh, that's what's wrong with me. <laughs> Duh, I have bipolar too. But it's like, okay, now what? What does that mean? Like, what is that? You know, what do you do now? Because guess what? I've been on every single mood stabilizer under the sun and none of them have helped me. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I, I think like the, the reason that I'm bringing all of this up, I mean, that's not the the root of what I want to talk about. It's more like you've been thrown all these things. You've had all this, a lot of hardships in your life. And there's a lot of people, Leah, that when they're in, in this world, they have a hard time like owning their imperfection. They're like, you know, I'm, I have depression, so I can't do this. Or I have anxiety, I can't do this. Or I went through a bad breakup or somebody cheated on me or all these things, right? And they they, they let that become the thing that just kind of brings them down a bit for the rest of their life. How have you been able to just own all of that to keep moving forward in your life and not give up on yourself? I mean, I can't believe people do that. That's so sad. I don't know. Like, that's crazy. I'm happy I have all my limbs. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like grateful. I have like two legs and like two arms. Honestly, like it's like, you know, oh, okay. I have bipolar. So yeah, it sucks. I mean, it sucks having mental health. Like, I mean, it really sucks. Like probably like once a week, I'm like, oh, can I die soon? Like, this is so hard. Like, life is hard. I have a kid. I have a lot. I have a lot to be grateful for. I have a lot of friends that died, you know, and I don't even mean from like alcoholism or drug addiction. I mean, like cancer and stuff. Like, they would do anything to be here. They would do anything to trade life with me and have a life, you know? So, life to live is to struggle and to live is to the human experience is not easy. The people who, even the people who we think have it easy, like sometimes I wonder like, does Kim Kardashian get depressed? Like, does she have anxiety? Like, I don't know, Taylor Swift. She seems like she's got the best life ever. You know what I mean? But like, they, they're fucked up too. Like they're really fucked up. Like they definitely struggle, you know, like for sure. I mean, I don't, I'm not familiar with all Taylor Swift's music. I know a lot of it has to do with men. So clearly she has her own issues with men and stuff. But anyway, you know, you look at these people and you're like, God, that would be great like endless money and like just being able to do anything and having all these people worship you and having like you know whatever every everything at your disposal and and those two seem like you know obviously there's a lot of people in the public eye who struggle publicly with drugs and mental health that we see but those two seem very mentally stable to me like taylor swift and kim kardashian so i'm like oh i wonder if they you know how do they do it as i was saying to be alive is to deal with things and sometimes life is harder at certain times and sometimes it's easier and, you know, things are not easy as right now, but like, you know, they're going to be better. Things always get better. So it all comes down to gratitude, I guess, is from what I'm hearing you say, is that just being grateful for what you do have in your life. And speaking of like being in the public eye, fame, obviously I know you were on, you know, Real Housewives of, of New York and I felt like 
you know, reality TV in many ways just can bring out the worst in people and it can just pour gasoline on existing mental health issues. And they like to use that as a way to just make the show more dramatic or make it more entertaining without necessarily going into specifics. Talk about your relationship with your mental health and how reality TV impacted it. I think that if the shows that I were on were run and managed in a more professional way, it wouldn't have been as damaging on my mental health. I do find it interesting that in the public eye now, there's a lot of compassion for people who have struggles with mental health issues, right? There's a lot of compassion for people when they're going through something, right? Not if you're on a reality show. Well, I was going to say, it seems like on reality TV, it's the opposite. And and nobody talks about, like, I don't hear anybody talk about that, you know, where there's this massive platform that could be used for the good to highlight that in a way that's beneficial, but it, it seems like it just doesn't serve their, their audience. I think that the audience wants to see violence and trauma and destruction of other people's lives. And it's something like um, new age, modern gladiator where it's like, and also I think that like, there's a part of the audience that maybe dehumanizes the people on Bravo or on whatever channel. I don't know whatever reality show, you know, people are watching, I guess, but you know, this is my experience with this is like, wow, like people are really, I find not everybody. And of course there's, I'm making generalized, you know, statements here. And I've, I've met plenty of fans who are like incredible and such nice people. And, but there is sometimes when I see the, the way that people speak about the women on the shows, it's like really nauseating. Because there's such a lack of like compassion or understanding or human, there's like a lack of humanity, really. It's like just we're characters. And you forget that behind the screen, there's human beings there. Yeah. And also, you're like not seeing everything. Right. From what I understand, you're just seeing like a very small percentage of what actually goes on and somebody's true personality. Like I've, I've met people who are on certain shows in real life. And it's just, it's totally different than what you would, th- what you would think if you didn't know them, right? And your personality could be very altered if you have five cameras around you and you know that you have to either cause pain, you have to inflict pain or have pain be inflicted on you, you know, for the show, for the drama. Let's dive into mental health. I'd love to know, like, what are some of the things that you do on a daily basis, on a weekly basis to help, you know, optimize your mental health, help keep you you know, moving forward in recovery? Like what are some things that you found to be helpful? Exercise is like so big. It doesn't even matter if it's like, you know, a mile jog, you know, I have to get my heart rate up. Like if I don't work out, it gets really bad. You know, it's kind of like, it's like, I think of it as like brushing your teeth. Like for me, it's like, I have to brush my teeth. My teeth are going to feel gross if I don't. Like I start feeling gross if I don't exercise mentally talking like I just having a support network you know like my support network is small but like very strong and I have my people that I talk to every day that I have to talk to every day to remind me sometimes you know just to ground me I think that like it's such a big thing like the the people who you surround yourself with is like it's more important than I ever realized I realized that like this year because like those people have huge impacts on you. The people that you speak to every day, the five people that you like surround yourself with or that you talk to the most, if they're not grounded, you're not going to feel grounded, you know? So that's a big one. 
writing really helps. Like I write a lot. Of course, you know, I, I have, I go to therapy. I take my meds. I talk to God. I pray, I guess, you know, like not like kneel down and pray, but you know, I just like kind of try to think about the bigger picture. Not just me. It's not just about me. I'm just a little stuck of nothing really. How have you managed this yearning to feel outside of yourself? You talked at the beginning that a lot of your addictive tendencies came from wanting to feel different than Leah. Like, how do you harness that now? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I have been, I mean, just to be totally honest, I'm not going to like drink or get up, but I've definitely been like dreaming about it or like missing it. And, you know, it's hard. Like, you know, I go to, you know, I, I, I'm in the 12 step world and, and that's a huge part. It's huge. And having those, that community, you know, and, and doing that work, that's a big thing. So I don't know how else I would stay sober, you know, and also like talking about it like this, this is like helpful. Like I'm going to feel better for the rest of the day because I'm talking about this with you. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times, I mean, people just have that, that struggle, right. Of like, how do they reconnect to themselves authentically to be like totally cool with who they are and love themselves for, for who they are and own their imperfections. How have you learned to like reconnect yourself and truly appreciate like Leah for who she is without the drugs and without the chaos and everything? I think disconnecting from social media sometimes is like really, really important. Social media is so bad for your mental health. It's like insane. And on the weekends, I try to like take it off my phone or, you know, I'll just like post and then kind of like not go on it. Sometimes I don't do a good job at that. I was like up to like one in the morning scrolling Instagram. So I think that's important. Like I'm also just, it's like about acceptance and like, you know, sometimes, I mean, I'm still, I'm still mad. I mean, like, I'm still like, not like, I'm not like, yay, Leah, I love you so much. You know what I mean? Like I try, like, I like, sometimes I'm like, I love you. I love you. I love you, Leah. I love you, Leah. Like sometimes I say that like, cause I have to, because like, if I don't, you know, I will, I will. I also think like a healthy dose of like self-loathing is like important. Cause it's like human, it's like humility. If someone is not aware of their imperfections or just like is so obsessed with themselves and doesn't get down on themselves. I mean, that sounds like a stupid person to me. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard, I think for people when they get sober or in recovery to, to have that balance, right. Because their life was in such chaos, you know, before, and I, and I struggled with this to where I felt like if I did anything to have a little bit of fun and not like addiction fun, I'm talking like if I ate cake or if I like didn't go to the gym or whatever, like that didn't, that like reminded me of the person that I was. I was like, all right, if I don't follow through with the, the healthier version of myself, I'm going to go back to the, you know, overweight, heavily addicted to drugs, Doug, that was in jail, right? It's this interesting yeah. dance throughout recovery that you have to to find. Yeah. Also like, you know, there were so many years that I, you know, I was dry or sober, whatever. I mean, I started smoking weed like five years into my sobriety a while back. But anyway, the point is like, you know, I still like, up. I mean, I don't even see it as like, up, but like, I still do dumb. You know what I mean? Like that I text my friends about that I'll never ever talk about publicly, you know, like, you know, there's always going to be like a streak of like wildness in me that I don't think is ever, it's like about acceptance. It's like self-acceptance. Like I'm not going to be like Miss Goop, like wellness, perfect ever. Like that's just not who I am. I don't even know if I'm ever going to be in a 
normal relationship ever. Like I, you know, like a normal, healthy, like relationship. I don't know. I might not, I don't even know if I want one. I, I, that might be boring to me. Like maybe in five years when I have five, you know, five more years sober, I'll want something different. I don't know, but I'm not judging myself for it. It's like, I'm lucky I'm alive. But where does that come from though? Because I feel like, you know, despite some of the stuff you you talk about, you have a lot of amazing things going for you and that you are this super kind person who takes care of herself, has built, you know, something that's very successful. You've overcome a lot. You're a great mom. Like, yeah, you, we all have our shortcomings, but I mean, it seems like you're like a catch and a really good person. Like, why would you like, like limit yourself? No, I'm not limiting myself. I'm just like saying like the the things that I'm attracted to. And I don't mm. even mean just like men or women or whatever. I'm just saying like, the things I'm attracted to in terms of like, even like work, like going on a reality show is, is insane. You know right. what I mean? Like, it's crazy. Like starting your own business is crazy. So I like to do things that get me out of my comfort zone. So do you think that having a healthy relationship would get you out of your comfort zone though? I think so. <laughs> no, maybe not. I don't know. I don't, I didn't mean to like turn this into a- No, it's all good. It's so, it's so I don't know. Like I, yeah. I just don't know it's been- I'm not sure. I might be toxic. I have no idea. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not toxic. But you know, I'm just, I'm probably a little like, I, I get bored easily. That's what my mother says. I get bored. That's what my mom always says. You know, my mom's a therapist, so she has a lot to say, but she says I'm just someone that gets bored easily. Speaking of, of your mom and your parents, you know, a lot of people in life, I mean, specifically though, when they're recovering from addiction, there's a lot of tension between them and their parents or vice versa. There's a lot of forgiveness that needs to be practiced and people have a hard time with it. How, how did you come to terms with, with all of that and improve the relationship with your parents? I think that like uh, when I first got sober in 2009, the first like like three or four years, I was like so angry at them. Like, And I know you're supposed to like, I don't know, sobriety, you kind of like look at your own part and everything, but I was pissed at them. Like I was holding on to so much shit. I was holding on to the fact that they like didn't let me go back home after Karen Foundation. I was pissed off that they signed me over to the state of Connecticut. I was um, annoyed. I was mad that they moved me out of New York City. You know, I mean, I had to like let all that go. I mean, I, um, you know, my parents are old now too. I mean, they're not like that. They're like 70. You know, that's old. Like we're getting older. I'm like, damn, I need to make things as right as I can with them. And yeah, I feel bad for my parents. They had to deal with a lot. You know, me and my sister and brother were, none of us were easy. So they've had to deal with it for a while. <laughs> Did any of your siblings have any struggles with addiction? Yeah. Well, it's just fascinating to me how you've managed to just crawl out on the other side of all of this, despite like the odds being stacked against you. And I want to read a quote from your book and it says, I'm learning through trial and error, many stumbles and some outright failures that there is no right way to live your life. I become stronger through adversity. I become smarter after every misstep. When you let go of the fear of making mistakes and disappointing people, including yourself, or being wrong or embarrassed or failing, you're free to be confidently, fearlessly you. In my professional life, I tend not to listen to industry rules and instead find my own way. Like, what do you think about when you hear that? If I'm living for other people and I'm living and I'm making choices based off of like, my need for validation from somebody else or something, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be happy doing that. I'm not going to feel free doing that. Yeah. I think 
you know, being on reality TV, you know, that, that you can like kind of struggle with that too. I feel much freer, like, and better, like not, you know, being, being on, on TV, doing that in that environment. I don't think there's a, obviously there's the wrong way to live your life. You know what I mean? But like, it's, yeah, but it's like, there's all these like shades of gray, like in between. And there's some things that obviously like there's some like ethical, like moral, like values I have. I'll never give an inch in terms of those things, but everything else is like, you know, I mean, people make mistakes. Like I'm, everyone makes mistakes. When you were going through what you went through, was it a year and a half, two years ago? You know, this was after this book was written and after this quote was written. Yeah. But going through that, were you were you thinking to yourself, like, this is going to make me stronger? This is going to make me wiser? Or were you like, oh, crap, like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Like, what was your mindset like? Oh, my God. No, it was one of the worst times of my life, period. Why? I'm not yet in the place where I'm like, oh, that made me stronger. Right. You know? Yeah. Like I'm like that beat me up. Yeah. And having a relapse, you know, it sucks. Hey, thanks for being vulnerable and sharing that. Like, I can't imagine how tough, you know, that situation was and just how tough it is just to share. I mean, this is just real life. Right. And I think that. It is. I mean, it's not like God bless people that like get sober and never touch anything ever again. I had to learn the very hard way about a life I thought that I wanted or that seemed really, it seemed so, I don't know what the word I'm looking sedu- seductive, you know, but I, I did need to fall on my face. Like I had to fall on my face. I'm just still picking myself up from that. You know, it's like, you, it's hard to bounce back. Like I was pretty like not okay, you know? So, and I went on the book tour, not feeling okay because the book was written and I was like, you know, I had to go to like a mental hospital. It was like, it was bad. You know, it was, it was like really pretty f***ed up. I'm still, yeah, I'm still recovering in a way. I'm sure you've, you've been through a lot. I can't imagine how devastating that must've been just in so many ways for you. I'm curious, like, was the the hardest part, was it like, just the mental state that you were in or was it like the shame of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I relapsed. Everybody's looking at me. You know, people know who I am. Like, what was the hardest part? It wasn't like about shame. Like it wasn't shame. It was just the mental state that I was in. It was more the mental, emotional and physical because it, it I was physically like, you know, it affected me like so physically, you know, it was just the toughest feeling. Like I just, I, I, had never had like so much suicidal ideation that I couldn't stop. Like it was like, you know, an OCD kind of thing. Like it had developed into like obsessive, like intrusive thoughts. And it's just like, I don't, I don't shame myself. Cause I'm also like, you know, I was looking to feel okay. Like I used, cause I was like trying to feel okay. <laughs> like I wasn't yeah. really trying to party, you know, I was trying to feel okay. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it's as misunderstood anymore, but I do think it is still misunderstood is that, I think people have this idea that people want to behave a certain way because it's like what they want to do and they're being their best self and they just, they want to do it just because they can and they know they could stop, but they just won't or whatever. And it's like, you know, one of the best definitions of addiction I've ever heard was that it's an internal battle displayed externally in that you can tell a lot by people's, like how they're feeling inside based on the choices that they're making, right? And you just you just know that it's somebody is battling deeply if they're going through addiction, you oh know? And it's so like 
you know, it's a, it's like a, a disease, whatever you want to call it. But it's like, you know, you become an asshole because right. like, right? and like, no one, how do you have empathy for someone who's like not taking care of their kid or stealing from their parents or whatever the addiction, you know, but like I only addicts, only other addicts will see something like that happen and go that poor woman, that poor man, that poor person going through that. And another person will go, that person's a piece of shit. Right. Poor person suffering. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's important to like, you know, hold people accountable, but I think that you also have to have this deep level of compassion for people, like you said, that are going through it and not like, you know, parents are always like, well, what should I say to my kid if he's struggling or she's struggling? I'm like, I mean, the first thing you shouldn't do is just shame them because they already feel like crap about themselves. Like you reminding them of that is not helping. Right. I think having strong boundaries with them is, is helpful, but you have to do it in a way that they feel like you still love them as a human being and, and not judging them as a human based on their behavior. Right. Because it's not who they really are. I remember my parents. I remember like I found a pamphlet from like some parent bullshit. They went to on how to deal with their druggy kid. And it was like, it said like tough love on it. And I was like, are you kidding me? You think you need to understand tough love? That's all you got people do is you're tough. My parents are tough. Oh my God, I was so angry. I was like, I just need a hug, you know? <laughs> well, I think people are going to be hugging you virtually from this conversation. So Leah, thank you so much for coming on. This is awesome. Appreciate you being honest and open. Yeah, I didn't know it was going to go there. Okay. Therapeutic. (laughs) I'm glad that we did. And thanks again for being so vulnerable and sharing authentically. If people want to learn more about the brand, if they want to connect with you, if they want to listen to your podcast and and follow along with what you're doing, where's the best place to do that? The best place is just follow me or go to my Instagram at Leah Mob, L-E-A-H-M-O-B. And you can find my podcast and my brand and everything else on that page. It's all there. Amazing. I'll be sure to link that stuff in the show notes. And Leah, thanks again for coming on. I think the audience is going to enjoy this one. Thanks so much.